All right, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to open to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, where we're going to look at the first 15 verses. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I usually don't root for the Patriots very much, but after this season especially, can't hardly help but respect the dedication to excellence on that team. A couple people stand out and are talked about more than the others, and one, of course, being Tom Brady, their quarterback, the other one being Bill Belichick. And I found it interesting as we get toward the end of this season and headed toward the Super Bowl, how many commentators during the football games were talking about Belichick and Brady, both in lines of being the best ever at their position. Tom Brady is amazing with the number of Super Bowls that he's been in and won and the number of wins that he has. It seems like when they get in a rhythm, they're just almost unstoppable. But you can't leave Belichick out of the equation either. The first Four games of the season, they weren't allowed to have Brady, and they still won three out of the four. Heading down toward the Super Bowl, they lose other valuable players like Gronkowski. They, they still win. What I really find is when you're looking at those commentators, and they start talking about these people being as the best ever, you got, your mind's got to stop and think about the crowd of people that they're talking about. Terry Bradshaw is a guy that was a quarterback, won four Super Bowls for the Steelers back in his day. He'd have to be one of the guys that's definitely among the greats. And he is one of the ones that's saying Brady's probably the best ever. I found it interesting that when you start talking about Brady being the best ever, you know, you're going to put him against more contemporary people like Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, Drew Brees. You know, there's, a, there's quite a crowd there. You're also going to look back to people like... Uh, Terry Bradshaw back in the day, Johnny Unitas. Uh, so that's quite an elite crowd that he's in and being touted as being the best. I was kind of curious about Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick would rank fourth in the most wins. Don Shula has the most regular season wins at 328. Uh, George Hollis has 318. Tom Landry has 250. Bill Belichick comes in fourth with 237. But when you look at that list of people, again, when you look at the career losses, Bill Belichick Belichick has the least amount of losses of those four, with 115, the next closest being 148. In fact, when you looked at the percentage, at the percentage, Bill Belichick is at 67%, which is equal to the top two in that category. You know, I think of the coaches, and I think, you know what, you're 
When you say he's the best, you're putting him in the same category as Don Shula, Vince Lombardi, who has the, the trophy, the Lombardi trophy is what handed out at the Super Bowl. Um, I think of John Madden. John Madden didn't have as many, near as many wins, uh, but he had the highest percentage. He, had, he won, seven, as a head coach, he won 75% of his games. But all these guys in that kind of a crowd are pointing at Belichick right now and saying, that guy right there is probably the best ever. Now, why do I bring that up? It's not because I care at all whether you think Tom Brady's the best ever or Bill Belichick. But when I look at this passage, that's exactly what Jesus is doing with John the Baptist. He looks at John the Baptist and says, there's not a man born of a woman that is greater than John the Baptist. Who's in that group? Everybody in the entire world. Um, and I look back, if you want to just confine it to the people born of a woman that we read about in a Bible, it's amazing. It's saying there's not a better than John the Baptist. Abraham is in that list. Moses is in that list. Noah is in that list. Daniel, David, Solomon. All of these people in this list of people that Jesus would... I mean, if you want to talk about a spiritual or Bible Hall of Fame, <laughs> like you find in Hebrews chapter 11, Jesus steps up and says, you know what, of all these people, everyone born of a woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Well, that's what we want to look at this morning as we look at this passage. We're going to look at somebody, this John the Baptist, who achieved greatness and was touted so to be so by none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is at a time, if any time in John the Baptist's life, you could look and say there's a, there's a weakness. Jesus makes a statement right on the heels of John the Baptist expressing doubts. John the Baptist is obviously facing some confusion. He's struggling a little bit. I don't care who you are. I don't care what position you're in or what your task at hand is or, or what you excel at in your life or what your giftedness is. Um, no matter who you're talking about, you're going to find that they have struggles, that they have times of doubt, that they have times where they struggle. I remember several, several years ago watching uh, an interview with Tom Brady, and he was talking about a time in the season where he was going through some struggles and things just weren't clicking for him like he was used to. And he was confused. He went to an old coach, an old college quarterback coach that he had, and he just asked him, he said, will you, will you get together with me? And just help me work through some things and give me some advice. And this old college quarterback coach of his got together with Tom Brady and went through and looked at what he was doing and looked at, maybe watched some films on it. And he said, you know what? I know what your problem is. You need to get back to the basics. And he just took him from there and took him back to the basics and worked on some things and worked through a few bugs and got him back on track. But I remember watching that interview and thinking, man, even Tom Brady has times when he's struggling at what he does. Times when he's confused. Times when he needs to get back to the basics and get back to some help. And this is the guy that a few years later, everybody would be talking about is probably the best ever. That's what we're seeing in John the Baptist's life right now. When we were reading through Matthew chapter 4, we found that John the Baptist had been thrown into prison. Didn't really give any details about it. Just said at the time that, Jesus, that John the Baptist got thrown into prison, Jesus moved his ministry up into Capernaum. John the Baptist has been in prison now for, for a little while, maybe as much as a year. It's hard to know exactly how much, but he's been in prison for a little while. And he's hearing things. It says that he's hearing about the deeds of the Christ. 
But he is causing some confusion for him. Now, why is it causing some confusion for him? It doesn't specifically say, but we're going we're gonna to speculate a little bit with a little knowledgeable speculation. One of the things that we recognize is that no matter who you are, no matter how strong or how good at something you tend to be, you're going to experience times in your life where times are confusing. We run into times in our life where maybe we're confused by different events or circumstances in our life, or, or maybe we're even confused as we're trying to learn the Word of God and, and grow closer to Christ through our knowledge of Him and His Word, and we're confused about some things, and maybe we're not quite understanding things clearly, and we're wrestling with issues maybe in our life. And there's times where we enter into some periods of doubt. Well, that's what we're looking at in John the Baptist's life. And let's look, first of all, as we acknowledge these causes of doubt. The first cause of doubt in John the Baptist's life, I think it would have to be circumstances. Because notice what the passage says. It acknowledges that he's in prison. I can see where that would be a struggle for John. He's the one that's preparing the way. Remember when people came and asked him about his ministry, when he started his ministry, they're like, are you the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one preparing the way. I'm the one that is answering the prophecy about the one being the one preparing the highway for the Lord to come. Now, how confusing would it be if you're the one preparing the way for the Messiah, telling everybody to get ready, repent, the king is coming, and now all of a sudden you, another king has thrown you in prison. You thought you were going to be spending your days out there preparing the people, preaching and baptizing people and telling them about the Messiah's coming, and indeed you have done that for a while, but your ministry has been cut short and you've been thrown in jail. So the creator of the universe is beginning his ministry that you're the forerunner of, but you're sitting in prison. That had to be confusing for him to be in those circumstances. Well, not only is there circumstances, but sometimes there are misconceptions. There are misconceptions that we have about what our life should be like in Christ or, or what God's activity is in the world around us. And I think these two things together would be the source of the cause for John's doubt. He's sitting in prison, but I don't think that was what he figured was going to happen. And the reason that I get that is because I think that he, his mindset would be a lot like the other disciples. Remember, as as we go through the Gospels, we see the disciples of Jesus, and they repent of their sins. They come to Christ. They're following him. He handpicks 12 of them, and they come to be with him and to watch his miracles, learn his teaching. They're even now at this point have been sent out themselves. They're getting sent out on mission trips themselves to, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But as we get down closer toward the end of his ministry, they're going to be asking questions like, you know what, when we get in the kingdom, can I sit on your right hand and my brother on your left hand. They're going to be getting in little arguments along the road as they're going from town to town about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It's not good enough just to be one of the twelve or even one of the three as you look at uh, James and John and Peter. Um, But who's going to be the greatest? And they'll start to argue about those things. And Jesus will tell them, you don't know when the kingdom's going to get set up. That's not for you. In fact, you'll even get to the point where he tells them, I'm going to go to the cross I'm going to go back into Jerusalem and the leaders are going to treat me ill and they're going to put me to death. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And you know what they'll say right after that? Okay, but who's going to sit on your left? (laughs) It's, It's like the message goes right over their head because they're so focused on the kingdom. And I think that John the Baptist had to be probably of the similar mindset. That he's coming and saying, get ready, here comes the king. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time to shed off this Roman rule. It's time to set up the throne because the Son of God is going to be sitting on the throne of David, his father, just like he promised in the old times. And the kingdom is here. And now John's in prison. 
And he'd been preaching that Jesus would come and that he would do great things and also that he would exercise judgment. And he's hearing about Christ do all these great things, these great miracles, but he's, he's not hearing him exercise judgment and he's not kicking out Rome. Because of his misconceptions of what he thought was going to happen, he's getting a little confused. And so he sends message ahead and says, are you, are you the guy? Remember, John had already baptized him, already said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But now he's asking, are you the, are you the guy? Well, Jesus is going to help clear up some of his misconceptions. In Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Also in Isaiah chapter 35, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus answers John the Baptist by telling his disciples to go back to him and just tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the, the deaf hear. And um, blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. And that's a good message to John. He's telling John, don't stumble. You've got some misconceptions, but you know what? You can see me doing the things that the Messiah is going to do when he gets here. Hang in there. Just hold strong. And so Jesus corrects his misconceptions. Now, as we get on from there and we start to look at John's life, let's look at the signs of greatness that we find within the passage. You know, part of the problem with the misconceptions uh, that we have is, and that the disciples had is that they're looking down into the future through prophecy, right? They're looking down through the future and they're looking, they're waiting for this kingdom. You see in the Old Testament, you see prophecy about Jesus coming and being our suffering servant, like Isaiah 53, him bearing our transgressions and, or, or taking our wounds upon himself. But you also see prophecy about him ruling and reigning on the throne of his father David, setting up his kingdom. Now what Jesus is doing is he's offering the kingdom to Israel If Israel accepts the kingdom, then those two things will come very close together. Jesus will suffer, probably at the hands of the Romans, and endure the cross. And he would have risen from the dead and set up his kingdom. And there would have been no gap between those two events. But because Israel rejected him as the Messiah, he came as our suffering servant the first time. And now he's not setting up his kingdom until in the future. And so now there's this big gap between those two events. Here's where the confusion is. When you're reading through Bible prophecy, it's like looking across a mountain range. When I was a teenager and earlier, we used, my family used to go camping at Wallowa Lake. One of the things that they have that you can do there is you take a tram up the side of the mountain and you're looking across the Wallowa Mountains and you can see all the way over to mountains that are in Idaho. You're seeing mountain range after mountain range go across there and you can see them all. But what you can't see is what's in between them. And you can see the tops of all of them, but you have no idea how close they are or how far they are from one another. You can't see the size of the valley in between. And that's what looking at Bible prophecy is like. You see a lot of mountain peaks, but you don't know how, what's in between them. You don't know how much time is in between those mountain peaks. So when you see passages that talk about the suffering of the Savior, and then you see the mountain peak of him setting up his kingdom, you just see the peaks of the mountains. You don't see the distance in between. 
And that's why it was very confusing for the disciples. Because when they thought of prophecies about the Messiah, their mind, their heart went right to the ones about him setting up his kingdom. And even if they acknowledged the suffering ones, they didn't know about the gap in between. And so it was confusing for them. But as we look at the signs of greatness, what do we see in the signs of John? First of all, as we see, and we get this from a question that Jesus answered them, when he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Now, they went out in the wilderness to see John the Baptist. Why did they go out to see John the Baptist? What was it about John the Baptist that they went out to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? What he's saying is, when you think of John the Baptist, this person that he's touting as being the greatest ever, is he the reed that the wind blows around? Does he vacillate? Is he flimsy? No, he is strong. He is stable. He has stability. And that's what, you know, John the Baptist is at a point in his life where he's just asking, he's just looking for a little bit of a clarification. So obviously he has a little bit of confusion, a little bit of doubt, a little bit of concern. But he's asking of Jesus, are you, are you the guy? Am I missing something here? But you know what? Jesus points to the fact that, look, if you look over John's whole life, is he somebody that vacillates? Is he like that reed in the wind? Is he, is he flexible? Is he instable? Is he somebody that just kind of blows about with every new doctrine or teaching? No, he's somebody that's solid. He's somebody that's, that's stable. He's a rock solid. You know what? That's what God wants in our life too. That's what if, if we're going to be successful, if we're going to achieve greatness in our life, greatness in our families, greatness even in our jobs, greatness in our faith, greatness in our relationship with the Lord, you know what we've got to be? We've got to be stable. We've got to be solid. Other passages that indicate that, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. So God is saying, look, you've got things in your life that you need wisdom for that are above you, that are beyond you. You ask me, and I'll give you the wisdom. He promises that. But there's a condition. He insists on this. He says, but let him ask in faith, no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So God says, look, i got all the wisdom you need for whatever you're going through in your life. You just come and you ask me. But i got one requirement. You better trust me. You better be solid in your faith with me. You better know that I'm going to give you this wisdom. You better trust me through this process. Otherwise, you'll get nothing from me. If you won't hold in faith, then you're double-minded. You're, you're going this way and that way at the same time. You're trying to walk with me and walk with the world. You're unstable. You're like a, a wave that's tossed this way with the wind one day and this way with the wind the next day. He says you've got to be stable. You've got to have faith. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, it also tells us that that's the reason for the ministry of the church and the reason God gave the offices within the church for ministry. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So he's looking at the foundational ministries of the church, the apostles and the prophets, and then the ongoing ministries of the church, the evangelists and shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God has given us in the church teachers that will build us up in our faith, 
The goal is that we all come to the unity of the faith. We all come to the point of maturity. And what is the description of our being mature? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. The goal of our ministry in the church is to bring all of us to the unity of faith, to maturity in Christ. How do we know when we're, if, when we're experiencing maturity in Christ? It's when we become stable, when we are no longer tossed this way and that way by this teaching and that doctrine and every new thing that comes down the pike, when we're solid in our understanding and in our commitment to Jesus Christ. Stability is a sign of greatness. John the Baptist would have to exercise great stability as he would stand out there day after day preaching calling people to repentance at the Jordan River. But I don't think anything tested his stability like that prison cell did. Well, as we continue on, the second one is strength. And the reason that I label this as strength is because of the next question Jesus asked, did you go out to see somebody dressed in soft clothes? Now, this definitely does not <laughs> label John the Baptist either. And from other places in the Bible, we know that John the Baptist wore camel hair <laughs> and a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This was a, a rougher character. The Bible says that he came in the spirit of Elijah, who was also a rough character. And so John the Baptist was definitely somebody that was not uh, raised in palaces, definitely not uh, dressing in soft clothes. He was a sturdy individual, a strong individual. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. Look at the strength of John the Baptist. You know what? John the Baptist, when he's preaching at the river, he's calling everybody to repent of their sins. That takes some fortitude to do that. Not only does he do that, when the religious leaders come, and they come to him, it appears that they're coming for baptism. He addresses them as snakes. He says, you snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These are the religious leaders that he's addressing in this way. And then he tells them, don't bother coming into the river. He says, I'll tell you what, you come back when you've produced fruits in your life that are in keeping with repentance. In other words, when I can see the change in your life, then you can enter my water here. <laughs> that takes some fortitude. Do you know why he's in prison? Because Herod on a trip one time decided he liked his brother Philip's wife better than his own. So when he returned home from the trip, he divorced his wife and took his brother Philip's wife to be his wife. And John the Baptist corrected him for it publicly, said it is not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. And so Herod threw him into prison. And the Bible says that he wanted to kill him, but he was afraid of the people because the people saw John the Baptist as a prophet. So he just threw him in jail and was content with that for a time, which we'll get to later when we hit chapter 14 in the book of Matthew. So John the Baptist was no, he was no weakling. He was very strong, very strong. And then not only was he strong, but he was also selfless. You know what? Selflessness is also a sign of greatness. Well, as we look at the passage, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus just at that point pointing toward the fact that, um, you know what, as we measure men in our society, as we measure people in our world, that the kingdom of heaven is going to be so much greater. In fact, Matthew continually points us toward that direction, the recognition that we need to live our life in light of the kingdom of God because that's the part that is so much better. You know what, as we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, he is the person that is amazing because of the, just because of the unique calling on his life. Some of the things that apply to him here do not apply to us because of the specific calling in his life. When Jesus said that he is a prophet and much more than a prophet, 
Um, John the Baptist is kind of doubly so. For one, he was a prophet calling the people to repent and to come to Christ. But he was also the answer to prophecy. Because the Bible, toward the close of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, and also there's reference to it in Isaiah, talks about this one that would come and prepare the way for the Lord. I can't imagine what it must be like to pick up the, the Bible, read a verse, and know that that verse is specifically talking about you in a way that it talks about no one else. We all have you know, thousands, millions of Bible verses that apply to us in a, in a general way that we apply to our life and our situation. But none of us have that where we can look back and see this one Bible passage speaks only of you. John the Baptist had that. That's an amazing thing. But he was, he was selfless. He was uh, willing to endure prison. He was in prison because of his relationship with Jesus Christ, because of his um, commitment to God and speaking the truth. But not only that, as we look through John's life, in John chapter 3, in verse 27 through 30, it says, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. The context of this is John the Baptist's disciples are coming to him and saying, Look, Jesus is baptizing disciples. He's gaining disciples. Kind of like it was uh, they were feeling a little competition. At this point, John the Baptist turns to them and says, You know, nothing is nothing's yours unless it's given you from heaven. Uh, or you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's kind of like that old saying, forever a bridesmaid, never a bride. John the Baptist is applying that to himself, and he says, you know what? That's, my, that's me. That's my position. I'm not the bridegroom. The bride isn't for me. So all the people that are being baptized... They're, they're being baptized for Christ. They're being baptized for the bridegroom. They're, they're, they're not my bride. They're his bride. And he says, that's the joy I have. And so he recognized. He says, you know what? From now on, he must increase. He must get greater and greater. I must become less and less. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, I baptize you with water. This is John for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Great humility. But he recognized that, you know what, I'm just, I'm just performing a service. This is not about me. A lot of the people, a lot of the crowds gathering, it would be easy for him to let it be somewhat about him. But he never let it be anything about him. He says, it's not about me. I can't carry his shoes. The Apostle Paul had the same attitude. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, the Apostle Paul faced his life and faced his death with this kind of selflessness. John the Baptist had that kind of selflessness. And you know what? I don't think any of us really come to any real measure of greatness until we get over ourselves. That's part of being great. You know, Jesus took John the Baptist at a moment, and I'm so encouraged by this, he took John the Baptist at probably the greatest moment of doubt that he may have had in his whole life. And he makes statements about him. 
He says, you know what, what would you go out to see? Was it somebody that's not stable? No. You might be a little confused at the moment, but he's stable. What was it that you went out to see? Was it somebody that's soft? No. He's strong. What was it that you went out to see? Somebody that's selfish? No. He's selfless. And in these we find greatness.